lessons. There is an initiatory map in what he writes. You get a sense of what we are all up against in the patriarchy. Perhaps from this man's story, you can breathe <clears throat> enough courage into your own soul to make further steps in your own growing up process, particularly in your relationship spaces. Mm -hmm. Dear Clinton, this letter might come as a surprise to you because the last time I had seen him before then was two or three years before this. Well, I just felt the urge to send these lines to you and share some of my insights and experiences of the last few months. But let me start from the beginning, which looking back was rather like an end. It was about two years ago. I participated in your training. It must have been my sixth or seventh training. And maybe you remember my process was about my stories going on with women and sex. It was my toughest and most persistent and lasting process so far. When after an eternity, the training was finally over, it did not feel like any endings, quote unquote endings, that I ever experienced before. Before, after a training, there was always this relief, a new vision, a clarity, something got healed. This time I felt like I'd been annihilated. I felt so miserable that I was not even able to drive home. Fortunately, another man stayed with me and took over the job of driving the car. During the next two or three months, although still feeling miserable, I did as you suggested. I did not connect in any way with women, neither women friends I knew from before, nor the unknown women at the counter of a shop. No eye contact, nothing. It felt horrible but I somehow knew that that was the only right thing to do, quote, to get me out of where I was. Somehow, that was the easy part. The logical, understandable steps on the way. The difficult, frightening part of it was that this process scattered my whole life plan, my whole story, a story about me, which I thought so far was true and more or less okay. This identity that I had kept for so long was gone completely. Only some fragments left here and there. I was in a big despair in the middle of a nightmare. The old identity did not work anymore. Most of it was not even there anymore. And besides that, there was just this void. During those months, I hated you. I was convinced that you had made a big mistake, that you had gone too far, that you had lost all respect and in a sadistic way enjoyed, quote unquote, killing me. As a result, I decided to never do another training and to look for something nice and gentle. I quit my long-term training program and withdrew from my spiritual path. So far, this was a description of my internal emotional process. What happened on the outside is that I really was not able anymore to live the way I did before. During my process, you said, Mr. The game is over. I did not get it then, but I got it 
much, much later. The women sex game was and still is definitely over. During the 18 months afterwards, it was like a pendulum had swung from one extreme to the opposite extreme. I did not have any contact at all in the first few months and then slowly started to meet women once in a while, but still staying very distanced and cautious. I really began to think that this is going to be my new style of life. The U-turn from the womanizer I used to be into a monk. Now in August, 2001, things are different again. The pendulum found a balance. I'm in love with a wonderful woman. We met about nine months ago for the first time and that met, met perhaps every second week in the beginning, both being very cautious and respectful. By now we meet nearly every day and this really sounds incredible since about a week or so we hold hands once in a while. Two years ago, this idea of a very slow, gentle approach was just not part of my imagination. It's about going to bed with a woman as fast as possible, and then maybe starting to get to know the person. It's the complete opposite now. We talk and talk for hours. We have wonderful walks in nature, and we are just are both so fully nurtured with that. There's nothing missing. It is so beautiful. I feel like a 14 year old adolescent being in love with a girl for the first time. Only now looking back, I realize how fucked up in relationship to relationship, women and intimacy that I was back then. I am so grateful that things have changed in such a positive way. And I must admit it's thanks to you. You were the midwife of this much saner person I am now. No one else had the courage, the knowledge, the strength, and the stubbornness to beat, quote unquote, me with such a heavy club. With, quote unquote, me, I talk about all my destructive, egoistic, hurting, isolating mechanisms going on. I really feel like I'm being healed in a very deep way. Like for the first time, I can see what intimacy really means. I am so grateful and happy you've shown up in my life and hit me so hard. It was absolutely necessary. And who knows, without your smack, I would probably still be on this very self-destructive track. By the way, two months ago, I finished my long-term training with a little delay. I joined another training in spring and I joined a men's group again. I'm also much closer again to my spiritual path. I'm looking forward to seeing you again someday with deepest respect. Author's note, that's me. A bit of explanation is called for here. By profession, I'm a trainer. Actually, by profession, I'm a memetic engineer and a transformational circle alchemist. There is a difference between educators and trainers. Educators share what they know so that you learn something new. Trainers do not depend on what they know. Trainers represent bright principles, which are aspects of conscious responsibility. 
trainers take actions in the service of bright principles during a training space so that participants can become something new. So instead of learning something new, they become something new. Educators give you knowledge. They tell you knowledge of what is already known. Trainers give you the possibility of new behavior and discovering what is not yet known. Sometimes to create this possibility, the principles show up as a smack. There is a science to smacks. The man who wrote the letter above had participated in six or seven trainings before this. Many layers had already been healed and he had been well prepared to be effective, a smack must come at exactly the right time in exactly the right place and in exactly the right intensity. This timing is too complicated for the mind to figure out. If a smack is to be delivered effectively, it does not come from the trainer. It comes directly from the bright principles. Trainings are not about smacks, but every now and then the principles provide a smack that jumps the train of our being to a completely different set of tracks. I know of what I speak. Just a few weeks ago, I received a big smack from my trainer. The smack he gave me will last the rest of my life. Much of what men learn on the journey toward becoming an adult man, our fathers never knew. Much of what women learn on the journey toward becoming adult women was clouded by a patriarchy that subjugated the intuitive intelligence of our mothers. Most of what we invest in and experience through our initiatory processes will never appear on a job resume as part of our VC. Our, our. However, when we lay down to die, much of the satisfaction from our life will have come from the risks that we took to fully step into the possibility of being a man or a woman in this world. Shannon was asking to clarify the smacks come from the bright principles, not from the shadow. Yes, that's correct. They don't even come from the trainer, like his ego or his skill base or anything like that. These are, these are basically archetypal force of nature coming to work in a training space, which is what training spaces are for. I will pause here for a bit. We are beginning, we are ending, that was the end of chapter three. Does anybody have comments or want to share something? I cannot see everybody's hand, so if you want to speak out, just go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say that I feel like I'm in between smacks. And, um, uh, yeah, and so, um, so I kind of know, I don't know, I'm anticipating the next smack. And, um, and so I was wondering, you know, as, I was, as you were reading this, gosh, somebody just rang the doorbell and dogs are barking. Uh, but as you were reading this, I was thinking that, you know, as you embrace your bright principles and, 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 you, and you connect with them, um, 
then they, they realize that you're ready for the next smack. Actually, I'd like to reframe the whole smack conversation because okay. I, I used it because I used that phrase because the man who wrote the letter used the phrase and God, there's so much fear of abuse coming from gurus and certain sects, you know, and so it is, uh, I think that I wanted to clarify how uh, uh, to actually just speak to the issue of the use of the use of allowing your world to collapse in the process of ongoing adulthood initiations. So it's just about, you know, you can call it whatever you want, but you can call it pulling the rug out. You know, it could have been the same as a smack. A really or, gentle analogy could be like popping a bubble. Popping an illusion bubble, exactly. Or, or, or um, there's, 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 you know, sinking your boat. You know what I mean? Like people build this little craft that they go around in, but hey, what about learning to swim? So there's, there's so many analogies to use. So I, would, I would kind of avoid the smack one and go into the liquid state conversation, which is, which is where we're going with the book, I think, is we're going into liquid states. Yeah. I just eventually. feel like I've lived this man, I really related to him, and, uh, and being there for months, once, once the bubble gets popped, like being there for months to, to be in the, you know, in the compost pile and to see what ferments and what grows out of it, right? Once the bubble gets popped, it's like, oh, back in the pile. I think most people in this team here, in the study group, have, have been around. And what that means is you've been in um, um, non, non-violent communication workshops, and you've been through, you have learned some procedures for proper listening and, and maybe some kind of um, uh, like conscious listening process, different things like that. You've, you've been through some, the, these first, you started to learn to feel, you've been through these steps and it, it just comes that after you've been along the road for a while, you've built enough matrix to function outside of uh, a, a reasonable construct. We, in terms of mimetic engineering and our survival strategy, one of our first jobs as a human being, as a child, is to build up an inner construct inside of us so that we can interface with the world. So of course there's language and all that, but there's, there's really a survival strategy so that if I'm challenged or if I'm, if I'm uh, not met how in a, in a quote unquote safe or supportive way that I can still I can still survive and make it into so I can start my adulthood initiations. And so we build this construct inside of ourselves, and it works. The thing works. Everybody needs a vehicle. Everybody needs a technology, an inner technology to get through the kind of the insanities of school system and our neighborhood creeps and 
our, our relatives and family and, and the belief systems that have been passed down for thousands of years and religions and all these things to survive all that. However, while we're building up enough matrix to hold, to be responsible enough to step into adulthood, it soon becomes apparent, hopefully, that we're actually designed to function, that we're bigger than the construct. We're designed to function without depending on a set of a construct. And in terms of possibility management, we call it human beings are designed to fly. And it's, I don't think we've had that conversation enough, hardly enough, because we're still in the phase in possibility management even of having people decontaminate their adult ego state from their child ego state or from their gremlin ego state or parent ego state to decontaminate that. And this is such a big thing. And to get your gremlin at your side and to have it start serving you and to prepare yourself to jack into your archetypal lineage, these are huge things. We haven't really had the space or enough attention space to start to enter the conversation that human beings are designed to fly. And so it's, I, I think it's appropriate. Like you can't, you can't take step 48 before you take step three. You have to take step three to get to step four. Just it's like trying to go through the door that's over there on the other side of the room. I can't, I can see the door. I've heard of the door. I know the door is there and I can't go through the door until I'm at the door. And so, Yes, it's okay to know that human beings are designed to fly. And every now and then by accident, one way or another, you'll have the experience of groundlessness. Like Pema Chodron says, the nature of reality is groundlessness. The nature of reality is groundlessness. Holy shit. And we're designed to interface with reality as a free and natural adult human being designed to fly. Okay, we're, what kind of schooling program do we ever have to prepare us for that? So we're handicapped. And so we're in this, in this kind of rapid learning environment that we've created here together to try to, to try to build in the pieces and do the practices and go through the emotional healing process together. We can do this. It is working. And it may not happen as fast as one might imagine or think. And it, does, it doesn't matter. We can only go through the doors where we are. Clay, I saw your hand. You were going to say something. Oh, I just, I'm really excited about everything you just said. I feel re like very resonant to that. And I, I, it made me think about Ken Wilber and he talks about these stages and one of them is like systems thinking. And I noticed that a lot here in the, with the lingo that gets repeated that there's sort of this attachment to create like to this development of a new, and because we're working with faulty systems. And so we were, there's like this excitement of like, I want a new language system, um, that, that better reflects, but it, it's kind of like doing a, a visualization in Tibetan Buddhism. You know, you, you, you create this visualization and they say it's like, it's more of a reflection of reality, but it's still just, it's still a construct. And eventually you really have to let go of the visualization. And um, the other one I thought this to mention because Pema was a student of Trunkpa and one of his quotes that I love so much is, um, he says, the bad news is you're falling. The good news is there's no ground. And that always sticks with me. Like, I mean, you said flying, but yeah, it's, sometimes it feels like maybe in, also in the beginning, you know, you're, um, 
you're falling. And then I just said, the other thing that came to me was that, that what you were talking about of um, like, in, same thing with like lucid dreaming, you know, sometimes we find ourselves lucid dreaming accidentally and we're like, oh, wow, this, our, this mind of mine can do this incredible thing. But, but it's more about like, how can I cultivate lucid dreaming? How, so it's not just an accidental experience that I run into. And I, I think that's happens for all of us. Like we run into wakefulness accidentally because you can't help it but how to kind of train in that or something. Anyway, I'm just, I like everything. I like where you're going. I don't mean to detract or. Thank you. I mentioned it several times before in the study group about how this is a book and it, it goes from one page to another page. And in a way that's really important and valuable because it forces theoretically a reader to start the book in the underworld section and the unconsciousness section and to start building familiarity with the mud. And we're, we're basically, our procedures digging through the mud to get to the sky. These are some lyrics from Lee Lozowick, digging through the mud to get to the sky. And, but, but without digging through the mud, fantasizing, you know, fantasizing that we can, or imagining or wishing that we could be in the sky already, that would be like skipping the first two thirds of the book and jumping to the last part of the book about the extraordinary stuff. And, and even then it's not nice, just to be clear. Um, the, the extraordinary part is not also not nice, but it's, it is the extraordinary stuff. So, but you just can't, you know, we cannot, it doesn't work that way. Like, try to build a, a building from the roof down like, like that. It just doesn't work that way. So it, it just will take a while and yet I agree with what you said, Clay, about this whole thing that we run into it uh, accidentally at times. And often, I think we actually run into it uh, more often than we would be willing to acknowledge. Like, for example, Scott's there is having a drink of water. Okay, so I think that Scott has actually had moments where that sip of water is pure enlightenment. It's pure incredibility of the fact that water exists, that he's mostly water, that he's one with the water, that water is happening, and this is all nonverbal experience happening. And it's this ecstatic um, being alive part of this universe that's so mysterious and, and miraculous. And, and, and having that experience, I think we have that far more often than we would normally allow and if, we, if you just start granting yourself permission to have short-term ecstasy or short-term enlightenment, something like that. It's like people have short-term memory, but this is short-term enlightenment. And you allow yourself permission to have, to be so ecstatic, even if it's gonna go away in three seconds. But you can just put a, put a pointer on there. You can go, that was ecstasy. That was 87% that was, that was, that was joy right there. That was emotional ecstasy, physical ecstasy, intellectual intimacy. I got that. I got this thing in my mind. It's intellectual intimacy, uh, intellectual ecstasy, and have it. Actually, grant yourself permission to have it. You know, you look at the guy over in the next cubicle at work and go, Bob, I, I, I just had this ecstatic three seconds of, of aha experience, and he'll look over at you and go, How many, how many lattes did you have? You go, shut up. I'm telling you about a real thing. You know, so, you know, it's, it's like 
So allow, grant yourself permission to put it into the space, the, the wildness factor, like the wildness dimensions of, of living, of being alive. And this begins to open these doors to the extraordinary worlds, which is what we're trying to, we're building up this foundation to go to because you don't have to do it alone. You can enter extraordinary worlds with other people also entering extraordinary worlds. This brings up in me this conversation that has been going on in the, on the page in the group about, you know, how, how is it when, when one person is on this ecstatic adventure, exploring the possibilities of five body intimacy journeys and the other partner is watching TV series, drinking beer and sports and, and complaining about work. You know, what, how is it possible? How long can you do that? And I don't mean to be total asshole, but you know, I did it for 25 years. So I know a person can do it for 25 years. You can, you can, you can hang out in that imbalance for 25 years. I mean, if I did not, if I was not such a good boy that I stayed married for 25 years, I would not have had so much enough pain to write this book. I just, so that was, that and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it if I had another chance. If you gave me another chance to do it again, I would go through those same painful 25 years if it produced this book. So, and I don't know what, what process you guys are in that's similar to that. So you can't just say it was bad or stupid or wrong to hang out in a, in a painful situation for 25 years. It builds matrix. You know, if you don't kill yourself or kill somebody else or go completely insane or get addicted to some really bad stuff, you, there's oftentimes escaping the discomfort is not, is not the path. It's just not the path. And so what is the, what is the time to step out of a, of a painful environment, this is a thing called a choice. It's not just a decision that happens in your mind. It's a choice that puts you on a new life path. And I, I just, I've been really investigating what choices. It's one of our three powers as a human being. We can declare what things are or are not. We can ask questions that uh, nobody can predict and it can take us extraordinary places and we can make choices. We can choose to, to accept what is, to reject what is. We can make choices. We can select choices that are not offered on the menu. So these are three human powers that we have. And if you're in some kind of relationship where, where there's, I don't, it just like, it's not, it's kind of does not deliver appropriate honor and respect to, to the honor of being alive. You know, if you're in some kind of relationship does not pay respects properly to the, to the good luck of being born and having a life. If you're in some kind of relationship like that, how long before you wait, you know, you stop causing it. So that's the first thing is how much are you causing the thing to be how it is. And when you get to the point where you go, this moment I was not causing it. 
and it was still offered. And in this point, I didn't buy the offer. I made another offer that was not ordinary and it was not received. And you do this for a while, it becomes, it, was, it becomes apparent to the universe that you should be in a different place. And like I was talking to, I had a single coaching process with somebody this morning where, where it was about relocating their point of origin from ordinary into a form of extraordinary, which is a, you can't do this process without already being able to endure and experience and express high intensity of fear and anger and sadness and even joy. So that's why we, we do this stellating work of turning on the feelings in the labs is because then you can do these processes. So this woman was able to do this process. She's barfing in this bucket and screaming and thrashing around, you know, to rip out her point of origin from where she'd had it from starting in her mother's belly. In her mother's belly, she could hear her mother talking to her brother who was older than her and they did not include her in the conversation. She was not seen. She was a girl, and this is like in Italy or something. So there's the boys have this, it's a patriarchy. So a boy child has priority over a girl child. She was ignored and not seen. And so she put her point of origin into a place of being adaptive and trying to figure out what everybody wanted so she could do what other people wanted and here, decades later, she was still in that strategy because she put her point of origin into being so adaptive and trying to please others. So she ripped, she spent like a half hour ripping this root, like this huge rooted carrot thing into the context of ordinary, of being adaptive, of being, pleasing other people, being a nice girl, and just, just fucking tore it out. And then she held it for a while. She held this thing like a fresh baby and then took that thing and planted it into the extraordinary context of being a female wizard. Most, most wizards are men uh, because of the sword work, because of the rigidity of, of logic like that, of the, of the mimetic stuff. But there's some women who are also wizards. And so she, she was one of them and she just, put the, her point of origin into the context of wizardress. And then she, that's what you wake up in the morning then. You wake up in the morning in this world of your whole purpose in your life is about delivering um, the being, you're walking the path of a wizardress like that. So um, this is, this is where we're going. This is the kind of thing we're headed to. This is, Other questions or comments from what we've been talking about or reading? Yeah, Maria. I'm really glad to have heard this letter. I've read it in the book a couple of times. Um, and I'm glad to have heard it because I'm in the midst of my white widow experiment. 
um, that, that the man in the letter described. And I feel so much fear to share this with the group. It's um, been really challenging to maintain that and build community at the same time where I am and in this sphere online. And I want to offer support and like community to other women and non-binary people in this group who might be interested in traveling the path of doing that experiment as a way. Maria, we're, that's a little bit of <clears throat> ahead of where we are in the book, but since it's up, would you tell people, could you just explain the whole white widow thing? Just talk about it for a few minutes so people get a sense of what, what kind of, what you're up, what you're doing, what you're into. What I'm doing. Um, what it is. I discovered through, um, I had a lot of stories about men having a lot of traumatic experiences in my past with men as a child. And I came to a session with Anne Chloe having a story about a man I was interacting with in a spiritual community that my partner is a part of. And his like vampiric nature and how he was putting this on me and trying to steal my center and making comments about my body and how I was, I was telling a victim story about this experience that I was having with this man. And through our conversation, it became clear that um, it was a game that I was playing, that um, I was opening, I was, my sacral center was open and pouring energy out into the space that was allowing this interchange to occur. And the story that I have that it, he was at fault and I was the victim is a story that was keeping me from actually experiencing intimacy with men in all areas of my life, both romantic intimacy and otherwise. And so I started this experiment of discontinuing connection with men for a period of six months to a year, which I've faltered on quite a bit um, in the past couple of months. And it has been bringing up a lot of stuff in my relationship experiment about making, like trying to own my partner's center and also giving my center away and expecting him to bring it back to me. Like this, like very, um, like some days I just can't think of anything else but what's going on in my relationship. Like there's nothing else happening in my life but my relationship. And that's like me having this kind of like breakdown about what it means to actually keep my center with having the survival strategy of White Widow. And it's, it's a lot. It's, I, during childbirth, my midwife said, okay, it's time to start screaming through your vagina because I had been screaming, I had been like making a lot of noise and it was time to enter into the next phase of labor. And so she offered me this guidance 
that I could move the energy and the feelings that I was having and the resistance and the pain through my body to open up a space for Valentino to come out. And it's been a really like vibrant piece of feedback that I've, that's been with me ever since that I can hold, I can, I have the capacity to feel all of this stuff, but I have chosen not to feel it by playing this game of mixing energies and enmeshing myself with men and also with people of other genders. It's not just specific to men, but it has to do with masculine energy and me playing a game with my feminine energy to make it valuable that I find that I need to like find my value or that I have traditionally used the survival strategy of assessing my own value based on how well I play this game with other people's energy. Yeah, thank you. Which in the patriarchal empire, within the patriarchy makes sense as a survival strategy that when you can pay for stuff with your sexual energy, when you can protect yourself by exchanging sexual energy, when you can manipulate and control men with your sexual energy, then it's effective as a survival strategy. It just gets expensive when you want to be adult and start living instead of merely surviving. And I'm speaking from personal experience because as a, as a child and a boy and a, and a young man, I also was a white widow really until I was 40 some years old and could distinguish the difference between presence and exchanging sexual energy. There's a difference. And the difference between connection and exchanging sexual energy is a huge difference. These are experiential distinctions. Sure, you can have a map in your mind, but you have to be able to do it and navigate it and not do it. And none of the survival strategies are right or wrong or good or bad, but the white widow survival strategy is, is just another survival strategy. While you're being a white widow, you develop certain talents and awarenesses that after you have as is or transcended or incorporated your survival strategy into your, your box set of tools, which is what happens in adulthood. Everything you learn to survive becomes a tool set as part of oftentimes part of delivering your archetypal lineage. So it's not even a mistake, the kind of survival strategy you work out. It's a, but it becomes a conscious, consciously accessible tool set in your adulthood. And so, this the work however the work of for example disengaging your gremlin from your adult ego state that is that is this almost similar work as shifting to extracting sexual energy out of your connection with other human beings so that you can make it conscious and that's it, it takes this period of time at the beginning like the letter said from the man this period of time of going cold turkey of absolutely not doing it because that's the time when you notice how enmeshed you are with it that's the time when you notice how 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 what kind of a force the addiction has on you and it's so uh if you don't have that kind of wake-up call that kind of grip if you don't uh, uh on on your powerlessness with regards to the addictive 
substance or the survival strategy method. If you don't have that, it's, you, don't, you don't get how important the work is. So that's what this man went through was this, this death experience, which is what, what, what initiations are about. It is this death experience. And it's not just one time. It's over and over in multiple dimensions. And, and that's where, I mean, through those kinds of processes, how we can shed the skin, shed the burden, shed the, the, the uh, belief systems, to shed like a lizard sheds its skin. It's like, it's like we, don't, we, don't encounter, we don't get to encounter life afresh until we let the, the old stuff fall off. And that falling off, if we've been holding on to it or de- gripping it or depending on it, uh, and then to have that fall off is, is a hugely frightening and disorienting experience. And that's why it's so important to have these kind of conversations, to start practicing the tools and skills that we'll be working with in the book and the, all of that. It's so important to build up to be able to do such a big initiation as Maria with the White Widow, uh, recognizing the White Widow and, and um, going, going through it. I mean, the thing is, with the death and resurrection show, the resurrection part isn't guaranteed in terms of there's you don't know when it's going to start if it's going to start how it's going to start but you do know about the death part and so the the collapse the crumbling the disassociation the even friends kind of leaving you or realizing that there's no psychologist on the planet who's going to talk you out of this one you know there's no this is something real it isn't it isn't in your mind this is, this is really happening. And it's, we're designed for this. We're designed for this level of transformation. It just is not in the common, common parlance. It's not in the common conversation. It isn't ordinarily spoken about. And yeah. So Maria, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for taking a stand to be with other people. There was a note run by from Vera Vera, do you want to say anything about that? Yeah. I, yeah, and thank you, Maria, for reaching out to me already. Yeah, I'm, it's been like exactly what Clinton said, a constant death and, and, and sobering up to how much I have not, I wasn't aware of, of, of the subtleties of giving, of leaking out sexual energy to Where, other just, people sorry to interrupt you i just wanted to read what you wrote because not everybody yeah. reads it it's, do you want oh, to yeah. just read it yeah i can read it i said maria i'm coming to the end of my year-long white widow cold turkey experiment if you would like to connect or want to talk to someone who has done or has been doing this radical experiment please reach out i am available Yeah, that's, that's it. I think what I was going to say next was basically reinforcing what Clinton had just said. So, yeah, and it's, it's so rich. The transformation that I, that I went through by not looking at men in the eyes, not having any hand-holding, cuddling, eye gazing, any of that, 
it was, it's, my gremlin was really scared. My box was freaking out in the beginning. And the more that I, I was really committed to this experiment, I realized how sad it has been for my life because I could not have friends. I could not have friends because I was always running a very low level, subtle sexual energy with them. And, and so that was always in, in there. That was always kind of a, at the base of the relationship and, and coming to this sobering realization that there is actually such a, it's totally different having a friendship with no sexual energy involved and how nourishing it is for everything but my survival strategies. Yeah, thank you. I want to point out or just share my uh, experience right now that we are this, this team, whatever you want to say, this conversation is in next culture. It's an archiarchal conversation. We've been having it ongoingly for, I guess this is 21 weeks or something like that. And that this space is a seed or a, uh, an experience that you can have of what archiarchy is. It's like, here's this space. We're entering territories that don't exist much with such clarity and such um, abundance in modern culture. It just is not available. Yet, as the more we go into it, and the more we have these conversations, the, the more solid it becomes. And it's a in in my mind, it's it's part of one of the places in the world where human beings are shifting into archiarchal culture, which is a natural occurrence. It's this, and there's a natural evolution and maturing of human cultures on Earth because we started as as babies. We started as Mother Earth took care of us. We we started as walking around in a giant salad bowl that was open 24 hours a day. And we just go around and take whatever we want and poop wherever we want and live kind of out there. And it was just this, the whole mother earth was taking care of our needs until basically until 6,000 years ago when the ice age really impacted the, the ecologies around the planet and put, you know, huge dry areas. And we had to learn how to grow food or die. So we figured out, we, our, our culture shifted from matriarchy to patriarchy and where, where the, the growing the food that we had was, was then something that could be stolen. The food that we grew as grains and potatoes and things like that that we stored for the winter could then be stolen by roving bands of patriarchal raiders who, who were these warrior bands who, who would then divide the lands up, conquer the lands, set up tax structures, set up ownership, you know, and basically fight with each other over territory and property. And that, that's what's happening. We call it modern culture, but that's really this, that's exactly what's still happening. And, and then there are these, this um, uh, emerging, um, what are those cells called? There's the cells that, that, that spontaneously pop out in the, in the mush. What are those cells called in the, I just, Imaginal. Yeah, imaginal cells. Thank you. 
this is an imaginal cell, you guys. And you used to be, we used to be alone. You used to be alone. And the more, the more we do these emotional healing processes with each other online, the more we connect, the more we talk, the more this imaginal cell start, we start coming together. And the imaginal cell starts forming into an organ of the new, of the new organism of archaearchy. And so we've been doing this long enough. I had no idea how long this would, would last, but it's, it's still going. And we're, we're, this, this group is, is becoming some kind of an organ in archaearchy. And I don't know what organ it is, and I don't know how this group will connect to other groups to form a bigger organ, but it's definitely happening. And so I just, I wanted to name it. I wanted to give it language and words so we could talk about it and you could notice it, how you're getting built out in you, these connections with other people in archaearchy around the world and who you may meet in person. It's so, it's so amazing that some of, some of you are coming to training soon, some in Portugal, some in Florida, some of, you, some of you are actually, we're coming together in trainings and it's just wonderful to meet meet you in person. This is so fabulous. And it, and it started as um, this study group and it's, and we're coming together as these, and I don't know how, what projects we will do, what, what else we will collaborate and connect together. But I, to me, this, these are all organs of archaearchy, like next culture is coming together here, getting its feet on the ground and having more credibility, more reliability, more substance. And I'm just very excited about that. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Does anybody else want to say anything right now? Yeah. <laughs> Yay, Arky Arky. <laughs> Does anybody want to say anything right now? We have, we have 10 minutes before we formally end. I would, I would read, why don't, what if I read 10 minutes of the chapter four? Clinton. Yes, Hi, Clinton. sounds like Vicente. Yes. Hi, Clinton. Before, before, just before that, I, I didn't understand the word imaginal cells. I don't know how to, I, I don't understand what, uh, what's written, how, how it's written, what, what it is. I'm okay with that. Uh, I encourage you to look it up. Uh, I was just working on a spark uh, that has the explanation of imaginal cells in it. And so I will put it in our, in our WhatsApp group, okay? I will put the link to that spark in the WhatsApp group. It's, it's just spelled, I'll just spell it, just spelled like that, imaginal cells. And if you Google that, you'll find very scientific and also more evolutionary definitions of how, of how we can make use of that understanding. But it's, a, it's part of the transformational process between, for example, uh, a caterpillar and a butterfly. And it, mm. it's about the cells, this first, the first butterfly cells that start forming in the paste that used to be the caterpillar. Mm. Okay, the thank you. The whole system regards those newly shaped imaginal cells as, as uh, an infection, 
as the enemy and starts to attack them, which is what happens in, in, social, in social imaginal cells also. And the imaginal cells are alone, but it's pretty soon the imaginal cells, they start finding each other and coming together and forming new, the new organs of the new organism. And then, and then the evolution happens. Evolution of the, from the caterpillar to the butterfly happens. And that's what imaginal cells are. But okay, I'll send a reference you. that you're welcome. Yeah. Great. I want to say something. Go ahead. Who's that? Kay. Hi, Kay. Hi. Um, I have. I have a big thing to say, and I'm too terrified to say it on this call. But it's about all this. Um, for one thing, it's being recorded, and it goes onto a uh, podcast. Um, and. But I, I will say something about it, maybe in the whatsapp channel um and the reason that i'm afraid to say it is because i'm afraid i'll be misunderstood and interpreted through the eyes of um how we usually patriarchal views of um, sexuality and um yeah I, I, it's too precious to me for it to be misunderstood would you say what you're feeling anyway? I'm terrified. Uh, <laughs> and sad that, uh, that there's such a risk it will be misunderstood. Is there any chance you could pick uh, two, like one or two or at least two people from the team here that you could start sharing it with? in a safe place, you know, private conversation, would you, would you ask for a couple of people to do that with you soon? Yeah, well, actually I have started sharing it in the women's group. The women know, some women know about it. Um, so. Okay, so that's working for you. Okay. I just want to mark it. Well, okay, you know, there could be distinctions or new thought maps or thoughtware or stuff in, in what you're in the process you're going through. And I hope that as those become more clear, you could share them with us. It sounds, it's research. You know, we're, we're all doing research and you're doing research. And when it, in the, at the beginning of research, it's just a mess. It's usually a mess. And it's scary because nobody understands what you're talking about. And it seems to contradict common sense or the ordinary thinking. And, and it just takes courage, it really takes courage to do the research. So I'm so glad you're doing it and that you have support. And when you get to the part where the treasure starts becoming usable by others, if you would share that with us, it'd be great. Shake. Thank you. <sighs> Thank you.
Thank you, Kay. And thanks to the team who's who the women, the women's group. Thanks to you guys. For about a few minutes, I'm going to read the first part of chapter four. It's called Some Amazing Things About Having a Mind. Human beings live in solid, perfectly defended, little self-made mental prisons. Our mental prison is a personal and individual choice. Contrary to popular belief, the design of our mental prison is not something we inherit from our parents or society. We carefully choose and install each stone, bar, and lock ourselves. Some of us assume that our environment determines the way we think and perceive, but such a conclusion ignores the fact that each human being originates in the awesome force of his or her own free will. Free will is far stronger than environment. For that matter, free will is stronger than God. If free will were not stronger than environment, human beings would never invent anything new. We would only keep recreating what is already there. If free will were not stronger than God, human beings would be ecstatically creating relationships drenched in love and would be living lives of vibrant joy, serving humanity through bringing our destiny to life. Instead, our conscious and unconscious purposes drive our free will to make other choices. We invest a lot of effort into custom designing our problems and our standard defense strategies. Consider that siblings, even identical twins, who are given exactly the same childhood treatment, the same opportunities and the same constraints, often form vastly different personality structures and make very different life decisions. Even if one child adopts the same habits and attitudes as the father, the sibling may adopt habits and attitudes that are the exact opposite. I mean, how many people have brothers and sisters who are very different from yourselves? Anybody have that? Yeah, I mean, in my family, I have two younger brothers and my parents were, <laughs> see you, Jeff. My parents were, yeah, now if you, you can take off any time here, this is the official end, but we can just chat for a while. My, my parents were neurotically, uh, what do you call it, politically correct about making sure that my brothers and I had exactly the same opportunities. I mean, which was really horrible at Christmas time because, you know, we had these boxes and presents, but whoever opened their present first, you already knew that you were going to get the same thing that your brother got. I already knew that. So it was horrible to, to have this kind of fairness going on. It was absolute kind of fairness. We all had my mother made these shirts. They were all made out of the same kind of fabric. The Callahan brothers went to school and all wearing the same shirts, this kind of thing. So, which, which you know, in terms of even with college support or uh, opportunities for everything, 
it was exactly the same. And yet my, my second brother, the one first young, one year younger than me, he, he ended up being so addicted to alcohol that he couldn't, he had to, the first thing he had to do in the morning is, is stop by the liquor store and drink a half a bottle of something. That was his breakfast. And my parents were not alcoholics. There was no horrible stress in our lives. We lived a real vanilla life in the outskirts of Los Angeles, above the smog, out of all the riots and everything. It was all white people living up on this hill outside of Los Angeles. And my second brother, he, he ended up being so addicted to heroin that he was in and out of uh, clinics six times six different times he was in and out of addiction clinics, taking methadone and all these, anything he could, you know, to try to stop. He couldn't stop. He just couldn't stop. And me, you know, I went to college and got a degree in physics and, and invented possibility management. I mean, it's like, so, okay, how do you explain that? How's that, how's that possible to explain? Because it's not the circumstances. Is not circumstances. So we're complex. I mean, the good part of the story is that in the early 2000s, 2001 or something, I ended up in a in Germany in a family constellation uh, all day workshop for my family. I hired this this amazing family constellation lady to take my father's the lineage of my father and his ancestors and, and then work on the lineage of my mother and her ancestors and really work through my family. And uh, I didn't tell my family that I was doing this. I just did it. And I didn't know much about it before I did the process. I just heard about it and tried it. And what, and then about a month afterwards, my mother talked to me and said, that my brother, Rick, the, the alcohol, he just, he had stopped drinking. And my brother Lee had stopped doing heroin. He was, and so, okay, how does that work? This is family constellation stuff. <clears throat> and it was correcting imbalances that were handed down generation to generation that my brothers were trying to heal through these substance abuse. And when the energetics were handled, they didn't have to do it anymore. They were freed of it. And so, I mean, my path, I had adopted my father's good boy act. And luckily was, I have a kind of dyslexia. So it's a, I was not able to be hypnotized. So I can't really be hypnotized. So it, it kept me out of this from, slipping into the school system or slipping into any kind of social um, grouping that would, that would uh, uh, hypnotize me into being an ordinary human being. So luckily for me, I had that. So, um, but anyway, I just wanted, the reason I'm telling you this story is just because of how these complex forces are at work in us, these dynamics and, and, they really can be addressed in different ways. And none of those ways are promoted by modern culture. You have to really go to the edge of the culture and step over 
before you can encounter those kind of things. So I would stop reading the chapter there and open the floor to Naomi. What you told us about what, what happened through family constellation work makes me 